Welcome to the second wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Just a small reminder that this is our pledge uh, week. And so if you could do a donation to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, if you like what you hear, then please help support us. Thanks so much. Now, I want to start tonight with a shout out to all of the trans people out there who are trying to live their lives in uh, what is not really a great situation. And I also want to shout out uh, the people who help them, including family and medical providers, even though uh, that is a incomplete set, unfortunately. And, um, you know, this is the end of the trans week of awareness. And uh, I think that, you know, trans people deserve more than a week. But anyways, um, and I especially want to uh, say that I feel very strongly for the trans youth Uh, who are being especially targeted in our deeply divided political atmosphere. And um, yeah, I mean, I wish I had had your knowledge when I was your age, but also don't envy you the strife being put upon you by adults who know nothing about you or your life. And I just want to, uh, you know, state it out loud that trans rights are human rights and there is no reason why a person should be targeted because they do not fit into the rigid standards of uh, assigned gender at birth. And so I just want to be very clear. I mean, I think I've always been pretty clear that I am uh, on the side of the science and the science is clear that transgender people exist, that they are able to, you know, have a lived experience that is in line with the way that they feel. And, you know, frankly, I also think that people should be able to do what they want with their bodies in all ways, shapes, and forms, as long as it's not hurting anyone else. If you want to tattoo expletives all over your body, if you want to get piercings in weird places, if you want to shave all your hair off, if you want to do any number of things, I don't care. Be happy. Do what you want. If it's not helping, if it's not harming anyone else, then there is no reason why you shouldn't be able to have control over your own body and appearance. Uh, Obviously, it also extends to women and uh, people assigned female at birth's ability to uh, make decisions about their own health care and um, about what they want to do with their body. And these are all, you know, separate but equal ideas. Um, obviously, I'm not comparing trans people to simply people who want to be tattooed or do something else. I'm just saying that all of these are part and parcel 
of bodily autonomy and people should be able to identify and live their best life in any way that they choose as long as it's not hurting other people. And you cannot give me a good argument for why a trans person is hurting anyone at all with being trans. There might be people whose feelings are hurt or who are disappointed because their partner is not who they used to be in their own heads, but that is not the same thing. And especially with trans youth, it is vitally important that we support them and that we are able to be able to let them do what they think is right for their own bodies. Okay. <laughs> with all of that out of the way, let's, let's start with, unfortunately, a, another kind of unfortunate, uh, story. And again, this has to do with, uh, young children. And in this case, uh, it's very young children. In the case of trans youth, they're usually, you know, in young, uh, adolescents or older adolescents, I should say, um, you know, uh, teenagers, things like that. And, um, it's another one of those weird things that, uh, TERFs often talk about is that, you know, they're trying to do things to prepubescent children and, I just want them to listen to what they're saying. <laughs> um, but anyways, that's, that's a whole nother thing. Um, so we were going to move on to a story about very young children. And so this is hearkening back to what we did for many months, uh, earlier in the year, which is basically start the night off with a disease update. Hooray. So this week, it's another outbreak of measles, this time in Ohio daycares and schools with, of course, unvaccinated children. And we haven't talked about this in a while, so I just want to kind of uh, go into it a little bit that, you know, this sort of thing is a direct consequence of the Andrew Wakefield lies that kickstarted the anti-vaccine movement back in the 90s, first in the UK and then throughout America. And now it is spread on social media networks like Facebook and Telegram and all sorts of places. And I think it is very important to say that unequivocally, vaccines are by far one of the best inventions humans have ever managed to create. The idea that one greedy man who wanted to sell his own version of a vaccine has led to such a huge increase in one's conquered childhood diseases is hard to believe, but the evidence is there. So now seven daycares and one school have outbreaks of measles, a disease once eradicated from the United States and the UK. As of Wednesday, there were 18 confirmed cases, all in unvaccinated children, with at least 15 of those children being under the age of four. At least six had been hospitalized, according to Kelly Newman, spokesperson for Columbus Public Health. And I think as of today, it's seven. MMR vaccines are very safe and highly effective at preventing measles, Newman told Ars Technica in an email. 
We offer walk-in MMR vaccines at Columbus Public Health Monday through Friday every week. We have not seen an uptick here on MMR vaccinations yet from what we usually do, but that is not indicative of uptake overall since we do not know what is being given by providers in the community. So it could be that people are getting vaccinated, but frankly, I doubt it. And of course, vaccine resistance also rose during the pandemic when politicians made the COVID-19 vaccine into a political football. In the 2019-2020 school year, 92.4% of kindergartners in Ohio had been inoculated with the MMR vaccine. But in 2020-2021, the rate fell to 89.6%. This is far below the 95% threshold considered ideal to prevent the spread, according to CDC. And as in many other places, the coverage is not evenly distributed. So some areas have every, have very high coverage, while other areas have extremely low vaccination coverage. And we know that measles is extremely contagious with around 90% of those who are not vaccinated becoming infected when exposed to the infection. And that can literally just mean walking into a room where someone has previously been who is infected. It is highly contagious. Now, before the measles vaccine became available, the CDC estimates that 3 to 4 million people were infected each year, with around 400 to 500 deaths, 48 thousand hospitalizations and around a thousand cases of encephalitis. And while that may not seem huge given what we've dealt with in the era of COVID, it's still 400 to 500 more deaths than would be necessary had those people had the ability to get the vaccine. Now, the U.S. was declared measles-free in 2000, but almost lost that status in 2019. And hopefully, this will not be the year where we lose that designation, Um, or in 2023, I should say, because obviously we're running out of 2022. But um, I'm really hoping it will burn out quickly and not continue to endanger children who deserve better and who should have parents who better understand science and medicine. But I want to be clear that these anti-vaxxer parents have been deceived by people who wish to profit from their fear and from their misplaced love for their children. People like Andrew Wakefield, politicians who have found anti-vaxxers to be politically useful, and those who profit by offering quote-unquote alternative medicines are those to whom we should place our blame. We can also blame the fact that the American education system is so varied depending on the state and the socioeconomic status of the community. So many people are not getting the kind of education that allows them to engage in serious critical thinking and aren't equipped with the ability to skeptically assess claims using the scientific method. And even then, it was only Years later that we found out the true extent of Andrew Wakefield's obviously disgusting, absolutely disgusting actions, long after his words had taken root 
in those who just wanted the best for their children. And so um, I do want to make it very clear that I don't blame the parents in the abstract. Um, I think that they are literally just doing what they think is best for their children, and they are literally not equipped um, to be able to discern that what they are doing to their children is actually more harmful than not. Um, and so I want to be really clear about that because I think it's important to say that these people have been lied to and they have been lied to by people who are very good at lying and who are very good at finding ways to extract money and gain from fear and so I think that when we talk about anti-vax, sometimes it can feel like you're blaming the parents. And I know that I am absolutely, almost certainly um, guilty of that in the past. But I was thinking about it really hard uh, when I was uh, writing this this week. And I thought that it was really important to be very clear that that is not my intention. And so, yeah, um, unfortunately, fear is a very potent way to uh, separate people from their money and from their good sense. And so, yeah, speaking of terrible people profiting off of anti-vax messaging, um, I just had to talk about this. It's not terribly science uh, related because clearly these people don't understand science at all, but it just kind of felt like every once in a while you want to just talk about something that is purely ridiculous. And, you know, it does highlight exactly what I'm talking about here with people who are good at using fear to make themselves rich. And so apparently there is trouble brewing among the members of quote unquote America's frontline doctors or, uh, Alfelds, A-F-L-D-S, um, which is a group uh, that has been staunchly anti-vax during the COVID era. And so the group is suing their former leader and the founder in federal court. Simone Gold, who founded the group, was just released from jail for her part in the January 6th uprising. Uh, and her performance there included apparently passing an injured officer without offering aid and giving a speech against COVID-19 vaccine mandates and government lockdowns in the rotunda while the January 6th insurrection was happening. Who boy. Um, she's now accused of using the quote-unquote charities funds and I will definitely say quote unquote charity because just because it's uh, registered as a charity, I don't think that a organization uh, absolutely positively run on the express uh, idea of deceiving people about COVID-19 should be considered a true charity. Uh, she's accused of using their funds to buy her and her boyfriend a $3.6 million mansion and of also, uh, among other things, and then having staged a coup in order to shut others out of the organization. 
Now, the lawsuit claims she seized control of their bank accounts, which are said to have at least $7.3 million. Think of all of the other things that could be used for. Think of how that could help unhoused people, how that could help children have access to vaccines or people have access to insulin. Uh, we're not really going to talk about that tonight, but uh, I did see a headline um, that Eli Lilly has uh, quote unquote realized that maybe they need to have a conversation about lowering the price of insulin. Um, so, you know, uh, thank goodness for the heroes who used uh, Twitter for the common good. Um, I'm sure that you know all about that, so I don't have to tell you too much. But anyways, she apparently uh, has seized control of the website, which has been pumping out propaganda defending her and claiming that, and she claims that it is actually the chair of its board of directors, Joseph Gilbert, who is the true thief. It seems, though, that Gilbert probably has the receipts as uh, they say, having actually hired a forensic accountant to go over the books. According to Affolds, not only did Gold buy herself a mansion, she also charged $12,000 a month for a personal bodyguard, $5,600 for a housekeeper, and spent $50,000 a month on uh, the organization's credit cards. She also bought three cars, including a Mercedes-Benz, and took unauthorized private plane flights, one of which cost over $100,000. I mean, honestly, uh, there are no good guys in this fight, uh, but hopefully it will make people pause a bit before thinking to take advice from or especially donate funds to this kind of an organization. And hopefully the two factions will continue to fight each other in court and therefore have less time to spread their anti-science and hateful messages. These include championing the use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. One member, Stella Emanuel, claimed that hydroxychloroquine was a cure for covid she also believes that gynecological issues are caused by, quote unquote, having sex in dreams with demons and witches, and that modern medicine contains alien DNA. Oh, and also that researchers are tempting, attempting to make a vaccine uh, for religion, as in to inoculate people against developing religion, um, which is just ridiculous on the face of it. Um, there is no way that one could do that. Um, and so Gold, since getting out of prison, has also opened a new venture called Gold Care, a for-profit health and wellness service that offers telemedicine and wellness consults for large fees. Affeld's lawsuit alleges that she forced employees of the charity to work for her new venture while still being paid through Alphids. So yeah, all of these people are bad, and I hope that they are all disgraced by the end of this. But who knows in this day and age, they'll probably all be able to continue to persuade people to be skeptical of vaccines, which are, again, one of the most impressive inventions in the history of humanity.
and they will do it for profit. I, uh, remember, um, or I haven't said this in a while, you might remember my famous phrase, which is that you are not mad at science, you are mad at capitalism. And this is that laid bare. They are in this strictly for the money. They do not care about the victims of COVID-19. They are just in it for enriching themselves. And it is obscene and disgusting and, um, yeah, I don't understand how they are able to do this thing. Well, I do. I mean, obviously we have free speech and things like that. And I do believe in that. I believe people should be able to say what they want, um, in certain venues, of course. Um, but I am, uh, just very, very saddened by these kinds of people. And some of them may be true believers, but, um, you know, it doesn't look like they are. It looks like they have really been in it for the money. Okay, so let us switch gears completely now. And we are going to talk about the first full sentence in the first alphabet. And uh, interestingly, it is about one of humans' oldest problems, Head lice. <laughs> May this ivory tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard is inscribed on a comb found several years ago at Tel Lakrish in Israel. This was once the site of a major Canaanite city, uh, city-state in the second millennium BCE. And, as is often the case, it wasn't until years later that it was examined and found to have the earliest yet found example of a full sentence in the first alphabetic language. Previous languages all used pictograms or symbolic alphabets like cuneiform. A new paper published in the Jerusalem Journal of Archaeology describes the spell engraved on the comb to help prevent lice. This is the first sentence ever found in the Canaanite language in Israel, said co-author Yosef Garfinkel, an archaeologist with the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. There are Canaanites in Ugarit in Syria, but they write in a different script, not the alphabet that is used till today. The Canaanite cities are mentioned in Egyptian documents, the Armana letters that were written in, Arcad in Akkadian, and in the Hebrew Bible. The comb inscription is direct evidence of the use of the alphabet in daily activities some 3,700 years ago. This is a landmark in the history of the human ability to write. So yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. Now, the first symbolic languages were developed around 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and Egypt. So again, uh, cuneiform, um, hieroglyphics, things like that. But it wasn't until around 1800 BC that the first true alphabet began to be developed. Little is known about the, the uh, origins of this development as few examples survive from before the 13th century BC. You might find a few letters here, maybe a word or two, but they're largely without context. Thus, it is very likely that most writing was carried out on perishable materials that have decayed over time, 
Garfinkel et al. wrote. Now, of course, that's a larger issue with understanding ancient peoples in general. Uh, perishable materials do not usually survive to tell us what kinds of technologies and what kinds of things these people might have been doing in their day-to-day lives. And so, um, yeah, that is a continuing issue. Um, and so, again, much like with the fossil record, you only know as much as has been preserved for you to be able to find out. Now, the area around Lakish has actually been producing inscription fragments from the 13th and 12th century BC um, since the 1930s, which suggests that this region played a large part in the alphabet's early history. And this area has seen many waves of occupation as well. The comb, just one inch by around 1.4 inches, was found in the summer of 2016 and considered a prestige object. Uh, It was found at the highest central area of the site, near a Persian period solar shrine, an Iron Age palace fort, an Acropolis temple from the late Bronze Age, and a Middle Bronze Age palace. So yeah, this is a place that has had a lot of occupation. The comb would have once had teeth on both sides, but only the bases remain at this point. One set of teeth would have been thicker than the other, presumably for untangling knots in the hair, while the other side had 14 finer teeth, most likely for extracting lice and their eggs from beard and hair. Erosion at the comb center indicates that this is where it would have been held when used. The authors also used X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, and digital microscopy to confirm that the comb is made of ivory from an elephant tusk. And of course, this suggests that it was imported, uh, notes Ars Technica. While samples were sent to the University of Oxford's radiometric laboratory, the carbon was too poorly preserved to give an accurate date for the sample. The inscription includes 15 intact and two damaged letters that complete a seven-word sentence. Now, the inscription is crude for modern standards, but still considered fine, considering how small that the letters are and the time period. Now, the letters become progressively smaller and lower in the first row, with letters running right to left. Um, and of course, that's the way that modern Hebrew is written. But then the engraver turned the comb 180 degrees when they hit the first edge and then engraved the second set of letters from left to right in the way that modern English is. Now, they actually ran out of room and had to add the last letter below the second to last. As noted, the letter translates to the sentence, May this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. And it's the first object discovered in the region to refer to the actual purpose of the object itself. Now, the researchers were actually able to confirm the presence of nymph stage lice on the base of the second tooth. And so that is pretty cool. Now, the previous oldest sentence is 400 years younger than this inscription. Throughout human history, lice have been a problem says Christopher Rolston at George University in Washington, D.C. We can only hope that the this inscribed comb was useful in doing that which it says it was supposed to do, root out some of these pesky insects. 
Now, Ralston, who was not involved in the research, told New Scientist that this was a brilliant decipherment. And, you know, it is so cool that this is an inscription that refers to ordinary life uh, rather than a political or trade document. I mean, both of those are fascinating and good, but it is really excellent to be able to learn more about the day-to-day lives of people uh, rather than just of the political elite's machinations, basically. Um, yeah, so very cool. All right, so tis the season, and we are going to just do a tiny bit on Thanksgiving before we take a break. So uh, I know you've probably heard this before, but in case you've forgotten, it is not the tryptophan in Turkey that makes you sleepy after dinner. Chemist Doug Young, Doug Young of the College of William and Mary teaches a special session of his advanced biochemistry class on Thanksgiving every year. Young's research is centered around amino acids, including tryptophan. All proteins in the body are composed of different combinations of 20 amino acids, of which tryptophan is one. Now, why do we even associate tryptophan with sleepiness? Because it's a precursor to serotonin and eventually to melatonin, which we associate with sleeping. But it turns out that eating tryptophan doesn't actually trigger sleepiness right after a meal. And it also turns out that turkey isn't even a great source of tryptophan. Apparently, there's more of the amino acid in soybeans, Parmesan cheese, and even pork. The food coma you usually get comes from overindulging on carbohydrates. This causes a spike in blood glucose levels, which is then countered by your body, which causes it to dip, making you feel fatigued. All right, so we are going to take a break, do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to do a couple of story updates. And then um, I think I have one more story after that. But uh, do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. It's a very important week here at Valley Free Radio. We're having our pledge drive this week. As you know, we're a community radio station, and we rely heavily upon the generosity of our listeners. We're a totally volunteer-run radio station, and we need your generous support to keep the lights on and to keep the station going. So I respectfully ask you, please support Valley Free Radio with your donation. You can visit our website at valleyfreeradio.org to make your donation. Thank you very much. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. 
Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back and you are still listening, I hope, (laughs) to Evidence-Based Radio. Just a small reminder that this is our pledge uh, week. And so if you could do a donation to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, if you like what you hear, then please help support us. Thanks so much. So as I said, we are going to be doing um, a couple of updates. And this story actually uh, dropped just a little bit late for the Halloween season. Um, but researchers have created a facial reconstruction of the Connecticut vampire, JB55. They have also strengthened the case for his identity as John Barber. Now, we've talked about this story a few times in the past, and so Barber's remains were first discovered back in 1990 in Griswold, Connecticut, and um, he was among several bodies uncovered in what was a uh, forgotten graveyard, and the way that his body uh, was placed into the ground made it very clear that he had been... uh, uh, exhumed and his, uh, skeleton had been re, uh, positioned in order to prevent him, uh, from being able to, uh, come back from the dead, basically. And so new efforts by Parabon Nanolabs and the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory using DNA analysis and a 3D scan of the skull, uh, have created the new image. Previous research had suggested that the skeleton belonged to a middle-aged laborer around 55 when he died. Signs of lesions on the ribs suggested a chronic lung condition, almost certainly tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis was generally the culprit culprit when people were accused of being vampires. Um, We've talked about Mercy Brown. We've talked about John Barber. Uh, This was unfortunately quite common in New England uh, in a certain uh, time period. And so not only did tuberculosis often lead to a bloody cough, 
Uh, it led to jaundice, red and swollen eyes, and an appearance of wasting away. It was also highly contagious, which made it spread through families. And so often one person would die and then another would get sick and people would blame the, uh, the relative for coming back to, uh, feed upon the still alive that though dying, uh, relatives. And I mean, in some ways, they probably did inadvertently, uh, contribute to their relatives' deaths, uh, passing on the tuberculosis, but they certainly didn't do it on purpose. Now, the new analysis used Y-chromosomal DNA profiling and cross-referenced the genetic markers with an online genealogy database. The closest match had the same last name of Barber. This was made possible by newer technology that allows older DNA to be sequenced. Now, but this is now this is still much harder than uh, with modern samples because obviously modern DNA is much more fresh and has uh, much less degradation. The researchers explained that it requires ten times as much data because DNA samples from older bones are both highly degraded and also have a large portion of contamination from bacteria and other organisms in the surrounding area. Now, the labs ended up using three methods, shotgun sequencing, targeting the whole genome, and targeting around 850,000 SNPs or single, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And so these are areas of the DNA where one or more proteins, sorry, one or more amino acids may be substituted for one another. Now, the latter two work much better than the shotgun sequencing with whole genome testing being the most cost efficient. Despite this, they still did not achieve the standard for DNA, a 30x coverage. So they had to infer the most likely genotype of each SNP by comparing it to thousands of sequenced genomes. The resulting analysis predicted that JB55 was fair-skinned with a 92.2% confidence, had brown or hazel eyes, 99.8% confidence, brown or black hair, 97.7% confidence, and possibly had a few freckles, 50% confidence. Sorry, I just wanted to go back because SNPs, it is, as it says, it is a difference in nucleotides, not amino acids or proteins. I'm so sorry. Um, so basically, um, the ACTG uh, nucleotides. Sorry, I just wanted to be careful to go back and make sure that that was clear. <laughs> okay. In order to truly image the face, however, they needed to make a 3D scan of the skull, which they did. And then they asked a uh, Paragon forensic artist, Tom Shaw, to then use his abilities to recreate the face. Uh, the team also tried to extract DNA from NB13, the remains of a child thought to be the son or other relative of JB. Now, while that DNA was even more de degraded, 
there was enough overlap to show at least a third-degree relation, making them first cousins. Then the DNA from both was uploaded to the genetic database GEDmatch, which connected them to other people with the last name Barber that lived approximately in the same time and place uh, in New England. And so this therefore makes it highly likely that JB55 is indeed John Barber. Now, I've tweeted a link to a video on the discovery so that you can see the face for yourself if you'd like. That's at EBR, evidence-based radio, underscore VFR, Valley Free Radio. So EBR underscore VFR. Um, now, I admit I haven't been using Twitter much or at all, um, and it may implode at any time, but as of this airing, it was still online and that tweet was live. Um, uh, if you can't find it, uh, it is a link to a YouTube uh, video, so you can just look for uh, John Barber uh, Vampire on YouTube as well, I'm sure. Um, and so, yeah. Okay, we are going to move on and check in on another uh, subject that has had more than one appearance on the show, which is NASA's Perseverance rover. And so Percy has now moved into an area called Yori's Pass near the base of Yezero Crater's ancient river delta. Now, this has been an area NASA was excited to explore after having noticed a rock similar to one from which Percy collected samples in July. Why were they excited? Because it's sandstone, rock formed from fine grains that were carried by water and settled to form stone. We often prioritize the study of fine-grained sedimentary rocks like this one in our search for organics and potential biosignatures, said Katie Stack Morgan, Perseverance Deputy Project Scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. What's especially interesting about the Yori Pass outcrop is that it is laterally equivalent with Hog Wallow Flats, where we found very fine-grained sedimentary rock. That means that the rock bed is located at the same elevation at, as Hogwallow and has a large traceable footprint visible on the surface. Now, Percy has collected 14 rock core samples, as well as one atmospheric sample and three witness tubes. Now, I, uh, I have to say, I didn't know what a witness tube was, so I went to the JPL website and so according to JPL, witness tubes are similar to the sample tubes that will hold Martian rocks and sediment, except they have been preloaded with a variety of materials that can capture molecular and particulate contaminants. They are opened on the Martian surface to witness the ambient environment near sample collection sites. With sample returned to Earth in the future, with samples returned to Earth in the future, the witness tubes would show whether earth contaminants were present during sample collection. Such information would help scientists tell which materials in the Martian samples may be of earth origins. So that's pretty cool. The next stop for Percy after Yori Pass is 745 feet to the southeast to investigate a mega sand ripple. The ripple is in the middle of a small dune field and is called Observation Mountain by the team. 
There, Percy will collect its first sample of regolith, crushed rock and dust. So that is very exciting. And plans for the samples have recently been solidified in an agreement in October between NASA and the ESA. The partners have settled on a sample depot at, quote-unquote, Three Forks, which is an area near the base of the River Delta in Yezero Carrier. This will allow for the samples to be placed in a known area in case there are later problems with the rover itself. It will make the recovery of these samples easier to plan as future retrieval missions begin to take shape. Never before has a scientifically curated collection of samples from another planet been collected and placed for return to Earth, said Thomas Zuberchin, Associate Administrator for Science at NASA headquarters in Washington. NASA and ESA have reviewed the proposed site and the Mars samples that will be deployed from this cache as soon as next month. When that first tube is positioned on the surface, it will be a historic moment in space exploration. And so Percy will will deposit half of its samples at Three Forks and retain the remainder of the samples. The plan is still to have Percy rendezvous with the future Mars launch vehicle, but the cache at Three Forks will serve as a backup site. Choosing the first depot on Mars makes this exploration campaign very real and tangible. Now we have a place to revisit with samples waiting for us there, said David Parker, ESA Director of Human and Robotic Exploration. That we can implement this plan so early in the campaign is a testament to the skill of the international team of engineers and scientists working on perseverance and Mars sample return. The first depot of Mars samples can be considered a major de-risking step for the Mars sample return campaign. Now, of course, remember that the sample return uh, mission is not set to set off until uh, 2027, 28, and uh, we are not expecting the uh, samples to return to Earth until 2020, uh, 2033. And then, of course, it will take a couple of years to really uh, be able to digest all of the information that is there. Um, and so... Uh, Percy has some time to do some more good work before that happens. Um, and the mission actually continues to evolve. And so they recently, uh, scrapped plans for some of their, uh, landing apparatus and have instead added to helicopters based on the success of Ingenuity. And these are also going to be uh, basically backup collectors. So if for some reason Perseverance can't drive over and uh, exchange the uh, samples right with the collection mission, then uh, these um, helicopters will be able to fly to Percy, uh, presumably, and gather the material. Okay, so finally tonight, Let's talk about how, after the demise of the dinosaurs, mammals developed and thrived to become one of the most successful sets of species on the planet. And how they got big. (laughs) And so, I always say that if aliens ever come to Earth and really want to talk to the dominant species, 
Instead of humans, they would end up talking to either bacteria or the ants. Um, the ants really do rule. We just live in their uh, world. Um, I say that because bacteria are a little bit harder to, uh, you know, believe in uh, being our overlords. But the ants, oh, I can believe the ants are our overlords any day of the week. Um, and so anyways, mammals do pretty well for themselves. Now, mammals evolved from a group called cynodonts who lived in the Jurassic alongside dinosaurs. And uh, before the cynodonts, there were synapsids, uh, which are uh, used to be called uh, mammal-like lizards. They're not uh, as much anymore. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's murky and, uh, you know, the kind of terminology is hard to pin down. Um, but as I always like to talk about when we talk about these sorts of things, uh, that Dimetrodon, the cool little lizard with the big sail that often comes in sets of dinosaur, um, play, uh, kits, that is not a dinosaur, that is a synapsid. So Dimetrodon is, uh, in the sort of mix of the family of animals that eventually led to mammals, not to birds. Um, and so, yeah, anyways. And so there is obviously some uh, debate as to when mammals became true mammals. Uh, and for a long time, they remained small with the largest being the size of a badger not tiny, but most of them were between the size of a bull and a badger, um, kind of squirrel sized was average. But around 62 million years ago, just around 4 million years after the Chicxulub impact, a new set of mammals emerged with finger like digits and furry bodies. These animals started to become the size of a big dog. And scientists now think they know how. So the story was published in Nature, and the researchers analyzed fossilized teeth and bones of Pentalambda mathmedon, a stocky extinct mammal that weighed around 92 pounds when fully grown. They probably got a little bit bigger, so that's pushing 100 pounds, which is pretty large when you think about the fact that this is a mammal that lived only 4 million years after T-Rex went extinct, said lead author Gregory Funston, who was a research fellow at the University of Edinburgh during the study. Mammals hadn't gotten bigger than a badger for the whole Mesozoic, 252 million to 66 million years ago. So Pantolamba, Lambda, was two or three times that size, said Funston, who is now at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. So how did they get so big after having stayed small for millions of years? The researchers believe it was the development of the placenta. They suspect that P. bathmodon babies gestated in their mother's womb for around seven months and were born already able to walk like a baby giraffe or horse. Today, placentals seem to be unique among mammal groups in having long gestation periods, resulting in larger and more developed young, but it is not clear when in their evolutionary history placental animals evolved to have a longer gestation, 
said Gemma Louise Benevento, a postdoctoral researcher in macroevolutionary paleobiology at the Senckenberg Biodiversity and Climate Research Center in Germany, who was not involved in the study. Funston explains explained that the animal would have looked a bit like a mishmash of different uh, modern animals. It would have been somewhat dog-like, somewhat bear-like, but would have had a long, thin tail uh, and feet that almost resembled human hands, complete with fingers and nails. Um, <laughs> evolution tries a lot of things. Some stick, some don't. Um, but what it didn't have, which is interesting, is a proportional body to brain size. And so what seems to have been the case is that mammals got bigger before they got brainier. Now, Funston and colleagues surveyed 12 P. bathmodon specimens consisting of 23 bones and a mixture of 22 teeth from juveniles and adults ranging in age from 2 to 11 years old. The specimens were all found in the San Juan Basin of New Mexico. By sampling all these specimens from a single site, a single bone bed, it gives us it gives us a bit of an advantage because it represents a single community in time, Funston said. Having a range of specimens allowed them to better estimate the rate of growth and lifespan of the animals. And by analyzing certain chemical signatures in the animal's teeth and bones, they could determine how long they gestated for, when they were born, and roughly how long they suckled. This was the first time such an analysis had been conducted on animals so ancient. Teeth develop a layer every year as they develop similar to growth lines in trees. The cementum, or hard tissue that covers the tooth root, the tooth root gains a new layer each year as well. And within this set of rings is a distinct birth line. This line contains a high concentration of zinc that is derived from suckling colostrum from the mother. Once the mother stops producing colostrum, the teeth begin to have more barium in them, which is a signature prominent in later breast milk. Analysis of the teeth suggests that the animals gestated for around seven months and then suckled for one to two months. Measurements of bones suggest that they would have probably been around 20 pounds by the time they were weaned. At birth, a P. bathmodon newborn probably would have been mobile. It would have had, had fur all over its body. Its eyes were probably open and it probably had a full mouth of teeth, Funston said. The bone growth suggests they would have also reach sexual maturity in around a year. Interestingly, most of the individuals died between two and five, but there was that outlier at 11. Most of the specimens we have died at about three or four years old. So that's really, really quick when compared with lifespans of comparable sized wild mammals, Funston said. The authors show that it is possible to directly measure changes in the teeth of 60 plus million year old mammals. And from this data, infer the gestation length, weaning age, and age of death of individuals, Benevento told Live Science. Teeth are abundant in the mammal fossil record, and therefore the application of this technique to Mesozoic and Cenozoic, 66 million years ago to now, mammal fossils, Opens, opens up new and exciting possibilities. In the future, I hope to see this technique 
used, if possible, on even older mammal groups from the Mesozoic. So, yeah, very cool. And uh, again, this is one of those both we found something neat out and we have a neat proof of concept. So hopefully we will learn more about the development of ancient animals using these kinds of techniques. Um, but that is all the time we have for tonight. So um, I hope you enjoy. I hope you have an amazing uh, holiday. And I uh, will probably not have a new show next week because of the holiday. Um, but I will be back in two weeks. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, sorry that I've been having some outages lately. All right. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.